0: Chapter One of the Young Diana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Young Diana by Marie Corelli. Chapter One. Once upon a time, in earlier and less congested days of literary effort, an author was accustomed to address the public as gentle reader. It was a civil phrase involving a pretty piece of flattery. It implied three things. First, that if the reader were not gentle, the author's courtesy might persuade him or her to become so. Secondly, that criticism, whether favourable or the reverse, might perhaps be generously postponed till the reading of the book was finished. And, thirdly, that the author had no wish to irritate the reader's feelings but rather sought to prepare and smooth the way to a friendly understanding now i am at one with my predecessors in all these delicate points of understanding and as i am about to relate what every person of merely average intelligence is likely to regard as an incredible narrative i think it is well to begin politely in the old-fashioned grand manner of appeal which is half apologetic and half conciliatory gentle reader therefore i pray you to be friends with me do not lose either patience or temper while following the strange adventures of a very strange woman though in case you should be disappointed in seeking for what you will not find let me say at once that my story is not of the sex problem type no my heroine is not perverted from the paths of decency and order or drawn to a bad end in fact i cannot bring her to an end at all as she is still very much alive and doing uncommonly well for herself any end for diana may would seem not only incongruous but manifestly impossible life as we all know is a curious business it is like a stage mask with two faces the one comic the other tragic the way we look at it depends on the way it looks at us some of us have seen it on both sides and are neither edified nor impressed then again life is a series of sensations we who live now are always describing life they who lived long ago did the same it seems that none of us have ever found or can ever find anything better to occupy ourselves with all all through the ages the millions of human creatures who once were born and who are now dead passed their time on this planet in experiencing sensations and relating their experiences to one another each telling his or her little tale of woe in a different way so anxious were they and so anxious are we to explain the special and individual manner in which our mental and physical vibrations respond to the particular circumstances in which we find ourselves that all systems of religion government science art and philosophy have been and are evolved simply and solely out of the pains and pleasures of a mass of atoms who are feeling things and trying to express their feelings to each other these feelings they designate by various lofty names such as faith logic reason opinion wisdom and so forth and upon them they build temporary fabrics of law and order vastly solid in appearance yet collapsible as a house of cards and crumbling at a touch while every now and again there comes a sudden unlooked-for interruption to their discussions and plans a kind of dark pause and suggestion of chaos such as a great war a plague or other unwelcome visitation of god wherein feelings almost cease or else people are too frightened to talk about them they are chilled into nervous silence and wait afflicted by fear and discouragement till the cloud passes and the air clears then the perpetual buzz of feeling begins again in the mixed bass and treble of complaint and rejoicing a kind of monotonous noise without harmony external nature has no part in it for man is the only creature that ever tries to explain the phenomena of existence it is not in the least comprehensible why he alone should thus trouble and perplex himself or why his incessant consideration and analysis of his own emotions should be allowed to go on for whatsoever education may do for us we shall never be educated out of the sense of our own importance which is an odd fact moving many thoughtful minds to never-ending wonder my heroine diana may wondered she was always wondering she spent weeks and months and years in a chronic state of wonder she wondered about herself and several other people because she thought both herself and those several other people so absurd she found no use for herself in the general scheme of things and tried with much patient humility to account for herself but though she read books on science books on psychology books on natural and spiritual law and studied complex problems of evolution and selection of species till her poor dim eyes grew dimmer and the lines from nose to chin became ever longer and deeper she could discover no way through the thick bog of her difficulties she was an awkward numeral in a sum she did not know why she came in or how she was to be got out her father and mother were what are called very well-to-do people with a pleasantly suburban reputation for respectability and regular church attendance mr james Polydore may this was his name in full as engraved on his visiting card was a small man in stature but in self-complacency the biggest one alive he had made a considerable fortune in a certain manufacturing business which need not here be specified and he had speculated with it in a shrewd and careful manner which was not without a touch of genius the happy result being that he had always gained and never lost now at the age of sixty he was free from all financial care and could rattle gold and silver in his trousers pockets with a sense of pleasure in their clinking sound they had the sweetness of church bells which proclaim the sure nearness of a prosperous town he was not a bad-looking little veteran he had as he was fond of saying of himself a good chest measurement and though his legs were short they were not bandy Inclined to corpulence, the two lower buttons of his waistcoat were generally left undone, that he might the more easily stretch himself after a full meal. His physiognomy was not so much intelligent as pugnacious. His bushy eyebrows, hair and moustache gave him at certain moments the look of an irascible old terrier. He had keen, small eyes, coming close to the bridge of a rather pronounced Israelitish nose, and to these characteristics was added a generally assertive air an air which went before him like an advancing atmosphere, heralding his approach as a somebody, that sort of atmosphere which invariably accompanies nobodies. His admiration of the fair sex was open and not always discreet, and from his youth up he had believed himself capable of subjugating any and every woman. He had an agreeable first manner of his own on introduction, a manner which was absolutely deceptive, giving no clue to the uglier side of his nature his wife could have told whole stories about this first manner of his had she not long ago given up the attempt to retain any hold on her own individuality she had been a woman of average intelligence when she married him commonplace certainly but good-natured and willing to make the best of everything needless to say that the illusions of youth vanished with the first years of wedded life as they are apt to do, and she had gradually sunk into a flabby condition of resigned non-entity, seeing there was nothing else left for her. The dull, tame tenor of her days had once been interrupted by the birth of her only child, Diana, who, as long as she was small and young, and while she was being educated under the usual system of governesses and schools, was an object of delight, affection, amusement and interest, and who, when she grew up and came out at eighteen as a graceful pretty girl of the freshest type of english beauty gave her mother something to love and to live for but alas diana had proved the bitterest of all her disappointments the coming out business the balls the race meetings and other matrimonial traps had been set in vain the training the music the dancing the toilette had failed to attract and diana had not married she had fallen in love as most girls do before they know much about men and she had engaged herself to an officer with expectations for whom with a romantic devotion as out of date as the poems of chaucer she had waited for seven long years in a resigned condition of alarming constancy and then when his expectations were realized he had promptly thrown her over for a fairer and younger partner by that time diana was what is called getting on all this had tried the temper of mrs james polydor may considerably and she took refuge from her many vexations in the pleasures of the table and the consolations of sleep the result of this mode of procedure was that she became corpulent and unwieldy her original self was swallowed up in a sort of feather-bed of adipose tissue from which she peered out on the world with protruding lustreless eyes the tip of her small nose seeming to protest feebly against the injustice of being well-nigh walled from sight between the massive flabby cheeks on either side of its never classic and distinctly parsimonious proportions with oversleep and overeating she had matured into a stupid and somewhat obstinate woman with a habit of saying unmeaningly nice or nasty things she would gush affectionately to all and sundry to the maid who fastened her shoes as ardently as to a friend of many years standing yet she would mock her own guests behind their backs or unkindly criticise the physical and mental defects of the very man or woman she had flattered obsequiously five minutes before so that she was not exactly a safe acquaintance you never knew where to have her but as is often the case with these placidly smiling obese ladies everyone seemed to be in a conspiracy to call her sweet and dear and kind whereas in truth she was one of the most selfish souls extant her charities were always carefully considered and bestowed in quarters where she was likely to get most credit for them her profusely expressed sympathy for other people's troubles exhausted itself in a few moments and she would straightway forget what form of loss or misfortune she had just been commiserating while despite her proverbial dear and sweet attributes she had a sulky temper which would hold her in its grip for days during which time she would neither speak nor be spoken to her chief interest and attention were centred on eatables and she always made a point of going to breakfast in advance of her husband so that she might select for herself the most succulent morsels out of the regulation dish of fried bacon before he had a chance to look in husband and wife were always arguing with each other and both were always wrong in each other's opinion mrs james Polydore may considered her worser half as something of a wayward and peevish child and he in turn looked upon her as a useful domestic female perfectly simple and natural he was wont to say a statement which if true would have been vastly convenient to him as he could then have deceived her more easily but deeper than ever plummet sounded was the simplicity wherewith mrs james polydore may was endowed and the natural way in which she managed to secure her own comfort convenience and ease while assuming to be the most guileless and unselfish of women indeed there were times when she was fairly astonished at herself for having arranged things so cleverly as she expressed it whenever a woman of her type admits to having arranged things cleverly you may be sure that the most astute lawyer alive could never surpass her in the height or the depth of duplicity such briefly outlined were the characteristics of the couple who in an absent-minded moment had taken upon themselves the responsibility of bringing a woman into the world for whom apparently the world had no use woman considered in the rough abstract is only the pack-mule of man his goods his chattels created specially to be the vessel of his passion and humour and without his favour and support she is by universal consent set down as a lonely and wandering mistake. Such is the law and the prophets. Under these circumstances, which have recently shown signs of yielding to pressure, Diana, the rapidly ageing spinster daughter of Mr. and Mrs. James Polydor May, was in pitiable plight. No man wanted her, not even to serve him as a pack-mule no man sought to add her person to his goods and chattels and at the time this true story opens she was not fair or fascinating or young enough to serve him as a toy for his delight a plaything of his pleasure life had been very monotonous for her since she had passed the turning point of thirty years nice people who always say nasty things remarked how passé she was getting thereby helping the ageing process considerably she meanwhile bore her lot with exemplary cheerfulness she neither grizzled nor complained nor showed herself envious of youth or youthful loveliness a comforting idea of duty took possession of her mind and she devoted herself to the tenderest care of her fat mother and irritable father waiting upon them like a slave and saying her prayers for them night and morning as simply as a child, without the faintest suspicion that they were past praying for. The years went on, and she took pains to educate herself in all that might be useful. She read much and thought more. She mastered two or three languages, and spoke them with ease and fluency, and she was an admirable musician. She had an abundance of pretty light-brown hair, and all her movements were graceful but alas the unmistakable look of growing old was stamped upon her once mobile features she had become angular and flat-chested and the unbecoming straight line from waist to knee which gave her figure a kind of pitiful masculinity was developing with hard and bony relentlessness one charm she had which she herself recognized and took care to cultivate a low, sweet voice, an excellent thing in woman. If one chanced to hear her speaking in an adjoining room, the effect was remarkable. One felt that some exquisite creature of immortal youth and tenderness was expressing a heavenly thought in music. Mr. James Polydor May, as I have already ventured to suggest, was nothing if not respectable. He was a J.P this in english suburban places at least is the hallmark of an unimpeachable rectitude another sign of his good standing and general uprightness was that at stated seasons he always went for a change of air we all know that the person who remains in one place the whole year round is beyond the pale and cannot be received in the best society mr may had a handsome house and grounds in the close vicinity of richmond within easy distance of town but when the london season ended he and mrs may invariably discovered their home to be stuffy and sighed for more expansive breathing and purer oxygen than richmond could supply they had frequently taken a shooting or fishing in scotland but that was in the days when there were still matrimonial hopes for diana and when marriageable men could be invited not only to handle rod and gun but to inspect their one ewe lamb, which they were over-anxious to sell to the highest bidder. These happy dreams were at an end. It was no longer worth while to lay in extensive supplies of whisky and cigars by way of impetus to timid or hesitating benedicts when they came back from a day on the moors, tired, sleepy and stupid enough to drift into proposals of marriage almost unconsciously mr may seldom invited young men to stay with him now for the very reason that he could not get them they found him a bore his wife dull and his daughter an old maid a term of depreciation still freely used by the golden youth of the day despite the modern and more civil term of lady bachelor so he drew in the horns of his past ambition and consoled himself with the society of two or three portly men of his own age and habits men who played golf and billiards and who if they could do nothing else smoked continuously and for the necessary change of air the seaside offered itself as a means of health without too excessive an expenditure and instead of chasing the wild deer and following the roe a simple hammock chair on the sandy beach and a golf course within easy walking distance provided sufficient relaxation. Not that Mr. May was in any sense parsimonious. He did not take a cottage by the sea or cheap lodgings. On the contrary, he was always prepared to do the thing handsomely and to select what the house agents call an ideal residence. At the particular time I am writing of, he had just settled down for the summer in a very special ideal on the coast of devon it was a house which had formerly belonged to an artist but the artist had recently died and his handsome and not inconsolable widow stated that she found it dull she was glad to let it for two or three months in order to get away with that restless alacrity which distinguishes so many people who find anything better than their own homes and mr and mrs Polydore may though as they said it certainly was a little quiet after london were glad to have it at quite a moderate rental for the charming place it really was the gardens were exquisitely laid out and carefully kept the smooth velvety lawns ran down almost to the sea where a little white gate opened out from the green of the grass to the gold of the sand the rooms were tastefully furnished, and Diana, when she first saw the place, going some days in advance of her father and mother, as was her wont, in order to make things ready and comfortable for them, thought how happy she could be if only such a house and garden were hers to enjoy, independently of others. For a week before her respected and respectable parents came, in the intervals of unpacking, and arranging matters so that the domestic staff could assume their ordinary duties with smoothness and regularity she wandered about alone exploring the beauties of her surroundings her thin flat figure striking a curious note of sadness and solitude as she sometimes stood in the garden among a wealth of flowers looking out to the tender dove-grey line of the horizon across the sea the servants peeping at her from kitchen and pantry windows made their own comments poor dear said the cook thoughtfully she do wear thin ah it's a sad look out for her sighed the upper housemaid who was engaged to a pork butcher with an alarmingly red face whom one would have thought any self-respecting young woman would have died rather than wedded to be all alone in the world like that unprotected as she will be when her pa and ma have gone well they won't go in a hurry put in the butler who was an observing man leastways mr may won't he'll hold on to life like a cat to a mouse he will he's that arty why he thinks he's about thirty instead of sixty the missus now if she goes on eating as she do she'll drop off sudden like a bursting bean but he ah, i shouldn't wonder if he outlasted us all lor mr johnson exclaimed the upper housemaid how you do talk and you such a young man too johnson smiled inwardly flattered he was well over forty but like his master wished to be considered a kind of youth fit for dancing tennis and other such gamesome occupations miss diana he now continued with a judicial air as lost her chances it's a pity for no one won't marry her now there's too many young girls about it no man wants the old uns she'll have to take up a mission or something to get noticed at all here a quiet-looking woman named grace laurie interposed she was the lady's maid and she was held in great respect for she was engaged to marry at some uncertain and distant date, an Australian farmer with considerable means. "'Miss Diana is very clever,' she said. "'She could do almost anything she cared to. She's got a great deal more in her than people think. And—' Here Grace hesitated. "'She's prettily made, too, though she's over-thin. When she comes from her bath with all her hair hanging down, she looks sweet.' a gurgle of half hesitating half incredulous laughter greeted this remark well it's few ladies as look sweet coming from the bath declared the butler with emphasis i've had many a peep at the missus." here the laughter broke out loudly with little cries of oh oh and the kitchen chatter ended it had come to the last day of Diana's free and uncontrolled enjoyment of the charming seaside Eden which her parents had selected as a summer retreat, and, regretfully realising this, she strolled lingeringly about the garden, inhaling the sweet odours of roses and mignonette with the salty breath of the sea. The next morning Mr. and Mrs. Polydorme would arrive in time for luncheon, and once more the old domestic jog-trot would commence the same routine as that which prevailed at richmond with no other change save such as was conveyed in the differing scene and surroundings breakfast punctually at nine luncheon at one tea at four thirty dinner at a quarter to eight dinner at a quarter to eight was one of diana's bugbears why not have it at eight o'clock she thought The quarter to. Was an irritating juggling with time for which there was no necessity but she had protested in vain dinner at quarter to eight was one of her mother's many domestic fads between the several meals enumerated there would be nothing doing nothing that is to say of any consequence or use to anybody diana knew the whole weary stupid round Mr. May would pass the morning reading the papers either in the garden or on the sandy shore. Mrs. May would give a few muddled and contradictory orders to the servants, who never obeyed them literally, but only as far as they could be conveniently carried out, and then would retire to write letters to friends or acquaintances. In the afternoon, Mr. May would devote himself to golf, while his wife slept till tea-time, then she would take a stroll in the garden and perhaps only perhaps talk over a few household affairs with her daughter then came the quarter to eight dinner with desultory and somewhat wrangling conversation after which mrs may slept again and mr may played billiards if he could find anyone to play with him if not he practiced tricky things alone with the cue neither of them ever thought that this sort of life was not conducive to cheerfulness so far as their daughter diana was concerned indeed they never considered her at all when she was young ah yes of course it was necessary to find such entertainment and society for her as might show her off but now when she was no longer marriageable in the conventionally accepted sense of marriage she was left to bear the brunt of fate as best she might and learned to be contented with the plain feminine duty of keeping house for her parents it must be stated that she did this keeping house business to perfection she controlled expenses without a taint of meanness managed the servants and made the whole commonplace affair of ordinary living run smoothly but whatever she did she never had a word of praise from either her father or mother they took her careful service as their right and never seemed to realize that most of their comforts and conveniences were the result of her forethought and good sense certainly they did not trouble themselves as to whether she was happy or the reverse she thought of this just a little but not morosely on the last evening she was to spend alone at rose lee as the ideal summer residence was called probably on account of its facing west and gathering on its walls and windows all the brilliant flush of the sunset she was somewhat weary she had been occupied for hours in arranging her mother's bedroom and seeing that all the numerous luxuries needed by that placid mass of superfluous flesh were in their place and order and now that she had finished everything she had to do she was glad to have the remainder of her time to herself in the garden thinking and as usual wondering her wonder was just simply this how long would she have to go on in the same clockwork mechanism of life as that which now seemed to be her destiny she had made certain variations in the slow music of her days by study yes that was true but then no one made use of her studies no one knew the extent of her attainments and even in her music she had no encouragement no one ever asked her to play all her efforts seemed so much wasted output of energy she had certain private joys of her own a great love of nature which like an open door in heaven allowed her to enter familiarly into some of the marvels and benedictions of creative intelligence she loved books and could read them in french and italian as well as in her native english and she had taken to the study of russian with some success greek and latin she had learned sufficiently well to understand the great authors of the elder world in their own script but, all these intellectual diversions were organized and followed on her own initiative and as she sometimes said to herself a trifle bitterly nobody knows i can do anything but check the tradesman's books and order the dinner this was a fact nobody knew ordinary people considered her unattractive what they saw was a scraggy woman of medium height, with a worn face visibly beginning to wrinkle under a profusion of brown hair. A woman who had been pretty when younger, but who now had a rather restrained and nervous manner, and who was seldom inclined to speak. Yet, who, when spoken to, answered always gently, in a sweet voice with a wonderfully musical accentuation. No one thought for a moment that she might possibly be something of a scholar, and certainly no one imagined that, above all things, she was a great student of all matters pertaining to science. Every book she could hear of on scientific subjects, whether treating of wireless telegraphy, light rays, radium, or other marvellous discoveries of the age, she made it her special business to secure and to study patiently and comprehendingly the result being that her mind was richly stored with material for thought on far higher planes than the majority of reading folk ever attempt to reach but she never spoke of the things in which she was so deeply interested and as she was reserved and almost awkwardly shy in company the occasional callers on her mother scarcely noticed her except casually and with a careless civility which meant nothing she was seen to knit and to do jacobean tapestry rather well and people spoke to her of these accomplishments as being what they thought she was most likely to understand but they looked askance at her dress which was always a little tasteless and unbecoming and opined that poor dear mrs may must be dreadfully disappointed in her daughter it never occurred to these easy-tongued folk that diana was dreadfully disappointed in herself this was the trouble of it she asked the question daily and could find no answer and yet she was useful to her parents surely yes but in her own heart she knew they would have been just as satisfied with a paid companion housekeeper they did not really love her now that she had turned out such a failure alas poor diana her hunger for love was her misfortune it was the one thing in all the world she craved it had been this desire of love that had charmed her impulsive soul when in the heyday of her youth and prettiness she had engaged herself to the man for whom she had waited seven years only to be heartlessly thrown over at last she had returned all his letters in exchange for her own at the end of the affair all save two and these two she read every night before she said her prayers to keep them well fixed in her memory one of them contained the following passage how i love you my own sweet little diana you are to me the most adorable girl in the world and if i ever do an unkind thing to you or wrong you in any way may god punish me for a treacherous brute my one desire in life is to make you happy the other letter written some years later was rather differently expressed i am quite sure you will understand that time has naturally worked changes in you as well as in myself and i am obliged to confess that the feelings i once had for you no longer exist but you are a sensible woman and you are old enough now to realize that we are better apart you are old enough now was the phrase that jarred upon diana's inward sense "'like the ugly sound of a clanking chain in a convict's cell. "'You are old enough now.' "'Well, it was true. "'She was old enough, "'but she had taken this oldness upon her "'while faithfully waiting for her lover. "'And he had been the first to punish her for her constancy. "'It was very strange.' indeed it was one of those many things that had brought her to her chronic state of wonderment the great writers more notably great poets themselves the most fickle of men eulogized fidelity in love as a heavenly virtue why then when she had practiced it had she been so sorely rewarded yet since the rupture of her engagement and the long and bitter pain she had endured over this breaking up of all she had held most dear, her many studies and her careful reading had gradually calmed and strengthened her nature, and she was able to admit to herself that there were possibly worse things than the loss of a heartless lover who might have proved a still more heartless husband. She felt no resentment towards him, and his memory now scarcely moved her to a thrill of sorrow or regret, she only asked herself why it had all happened of course there was no answer to such a query there never is and she was old enough yes quite old enough to put away all romance and sentimentality yet, as she walked slowly in the garden among the roses, and watched the sea sparkling in the warm afterglow of what had been an exceptionally fine sunsetting, the old, foolish craving stirred in her heart again. The scent of the flowers, the delicate breathings of the summer air, the flash of the seagull's white wings skimming over the glittering sand pools—all these expressions of natural beauty saddened, while they entranced her soul she longed to be one with them sharing their life and imparting to others something of their joy they never grow old she said half aloud or if they do it is not perceived they seem always the same always beautiful and vital here she paused a standard rose-tree, weighted with splendid blossom, showed among its flowers, one that had been cramped and spoiled by the over-profusion and close pressure of its companions. It was decaying amid the eager crowd of bursting buds that looked almost humanly anxious to be relieved of its presence. With soft, deft fingers, Diana broke it away from the stem and let it drop to earth. "'That is me,' she said and that's what ought to become of me nothing withered or ugly ought to live in such a lovely world i am a blot on beauty she looked out to sea again the afterglow had almost faded only one broad line of dull gold showed the parting trail of the sun no there's no hope she murmured with an expressive gesture of her hands I must plod on day after day in the same old rut of things doing my duty which is perhaps all i ought to ask to do trying to make my mother comfortable and to keep my father in decent humour and then then when they go i shall be alone in the world no one will care what becomes of me even as it is now no one cares whether i live or die This is the discordant note in many a life's music. No one cares. When no one cares, for us, we do not care about ourselves or about anybody else. And in not caring, we stumble blindly and unconsciously on our only chance of safety and happiness. A heartless truth, but a truth all the same. For when we have become utterly indifferent to destiny, destiny, like a spoiled child, does all she can to attract our notice, and manifests a sudden interest in us, of which we had never dreamed. And the less we care, the more she clings. End of chapter 1